We're with psychologist Maria Siwa, Sue Langley, a specialty being neuroscience and emotion, Evan Sutter, who's used the lessons from his personal story to try to help others. Uh, Next, what science and scripture tells us about happiness? It turns out they're both peer-reviewed. It's God forbid. Let's start with an inquisition of sorts. We do it each week on God Forbid, and it gets a little bit less rude each time. Maria, you first. What is your religious story? Raised as a Catholic, uh, was convinced I was here to be a priest. At the age of eight, I asked the nuns, because I went to Catholic school, uh, weekly catechism class, asked the nuns to take me to priest class. And you can imagine what they said to me. (laughs) Dirty little temptress. That was not going to happen. And by the time I was 17, I left the Catholic Church, spent my 20s searching and seeking, and then in my early 30s began to actually have dreams about converting to Judaism and dreamt for a year, didn't tell anyone about it. And then one morning, my Sicilian Catholic grandmother, who I'm named for, Maria Angelina, came to me in a dream, and she was a seamstress during her life, and opened up a bedroom uh, drawer and in it were hundreds of hand-sewn yarmulkes and said to me, I've been saving these for you. So I thought, okay. Wow. Yeah, and then began to study with a really fantastic rabbi and converted to Judaism when I was about 35. I also think that working with dying children did something to my perspective in the sense of really keeping the focus on the life that we're currently living. That's a very Jewish thing. Turns out. Who knew? <laughs> uh, Evan, what's your religious story? Um, grew up Catholic. My mum was a Catholic. Um, actually, my great uncle was a priest and my grandfather was an acolyte. And then when I turned 18, I sort of left it behind, apart from joining my mum for the odd midnight mass on Christmas Eve as a Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, I sort of left me at, at 18 until the next time I came across it was when I ventured to visit my brother in the, in the monastery. Did you become Buddhist? No, no, not at all. Um, I certainly enjoy some of the practices and and I still do a lot of those things to benefit my life, but I definitely wouldn't label myself as a Buddhist. And in this Buddhist monastery you stayed at, they were happy having you as a non-Buddhist and they indeed had people who were of many faiths. Yeah, of course. Um, A lot of the people who came to the retreats, you know, were from all different backgrounds, internationally and religious-wise. There was even a Muslim who was a, a monk there. And even Thich Nhat Hanh, the man who created the centres, he spoke openly about Jesus and various religions in a lot of his talks. Sue, I know organised or institutionalised religion isn't a part of your life, but do you have, inverted commas, spirituality, this word that means different things to different people? For me, it's how do I feel connected to the universe? I'm very much uh, into the whole neuroscience, quantum physics, those sorts of things. But I think there's that self-actualization of being the best we can be. And I think a lot of the things that occur in organized religion, if we can learn from that outside, there are still some amazing things. So every religion has some form of prayer, um, mindfulness, some sort of practice that allows us to focus and clear ourselves in some way. Well, we can do that outside of religion. Most religions have some form of community connection um, where people feel a sense of belonging. Well, we can still get that outside of religion if we need to, too. We're just not doing it sometimes. Well, let's have a look at what the Abrahamic faiths taught us about happiness 1,400 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and at least 
2,600 years ago. We'll start with the most recent, the Quran. The Quran is very clear that happiness in this world, in this moment, is really not the object of life. Rather, you should be living not for your own contentment and satisfaction, but for God's contentment and satisfaction with you. Muslim mystics really focused on understanding the ego and overcoming its impulses. If we can control our wants and observe our vacillation back and forth between happiness and unhappiness in this world and focus our energies on a higher quest for well-being that will lead to salvation of the soul in the next world, that that is the ultimate happiness. That's Emery, Professor of Islamic Studies, Scott Kugel. So how do the books of the Christian New Testament relate to happiness? They relate to happiness because they are introduced with the word blessed. And blessed is often taken as a synonym for happiness. And if you think of blessedness as a life of bliss or a life of well-being, then the Beatitudes really do sketch a vision of human well-being. Carl Holliday, Professor of New Testament at the Candler School of Theology. And that brings us to the Torah, the holy books of the Jews. The scripture says, V'samachta b'chagecha, rejoice in your festivals, v'hayita achsamech, and be really happy. The life you've been given in this world is a gift, and it's very much this world focused. And you should take pleasure in all the spiritual things, the familial relationships, material things, even relationships, sexual relationships, is seen as a source of joy within its context. You know, it's not God put food on the world so I can be a, a glutton, but within the context. Maria, do you recognize the voice? I don't. It's uh, Deborah Lipstadt, the Emory uh. Professor of Jewish History, and there's a recent movie about her, Denial. She's played by Rachel Weisz. Uh, it's about the famous trial where the English Holocaust denier David Irving sued her for defamation. It's a feel-good movie because he lost and was bankrupted. <laughs> but back to the happiness, Judaism, and Islam and Christianity, um, Maria, we heard some big differences there, but also some similarities. I think for me, you know, just hearing those three clips reminds me how deep the longing is within each of us to make sense of this existence and to find a way to feel connected, to belong to an understanding or a way of seeing and therefore belong to a group of people who may feel similarly. And Sue, the messages of service for others, managing the ego, celebrating life in moderation, which we heard in those clips, how far away from what you teach in the modern secular context? Exactly the same. We talk about all sorts of things, about having a sense of meaning or purpose, having that sense of connection, doing something you believe in, living according to your values. All those sorts of things still play out. And Evan, this quest for happiness, the journey to find it, you had this quest to find more and more women to seduce in your hedonistic years. Sorry for being frank about it. But the great and magical irony was that when you stopped, you found your love and your partner. Yeah, essentially, yeah. I spent many, many years chasing after these kinds of things. And the moment I stopped to sort of put the attention back on myself was the, the moment all these different things kind of happened, including meeting a, a cool girl, which ironically, if I met her two months earlier, she probably would have laughed at me and, you know, that would have been it. But Because she's perceptive enough intelligent enough to realise that I was a bit of a fool. 
We're with the psychologist Maria Siwa, Sue Langley, whose specialty is neuroscience and emotion, Evan Sutter, who uses the lessons from his personal story to share with others, and next we're going to get to the science of positive psychology and emotional intelligence. But first, the legendary comedian Jackie Mason, who actually trained to be a rabbi in his early days, he reminds us that when we're on our journey within to look inside ourselves, you need to have a laugh along the way. I didn't know who I was. I went to a psychiatrist. I'm not ashamed to admit it. He took a look at me right away. He said, this is not you. I said, this is not me. Then who is it? He said, I don't know either. I said, then what do I need you for? He said, to find out who you are. He said, together, we're going to look for the real you. I said, if I don't know who I am, how do I know who to look for? And even if I find me, how do I know if it's me? Besides, if I want to look for me, what do I need him? I can look myself. Or I can take my friends. We know where I was. What if I find the real me and I find that he's even worse than me? What do I need him? I don't make enough for myself. I need a partner. Ten years ago, I'd be glad to look for anybody. Now I'm doing good. Why should I look for him? He needs help. Let him look for me. He said, the search for the real you will have to continue. That'll be a hundred dollars, please. I said to myself, this is not the real me. Why should I give him the hundred dollars? I'll look for the real me. Let him give him the hundred dollars. I said to myself, for all I know, the real me might be going to a different psychiatrist altogether. Might even be a psychiatrist himself. I said, wouldn't it be funny if you're the real me and you owe me a hundred dollars? Comedy legend Jackie Mason, RN. It's God forbid. So, emotional intelligence and positive psychology. I mean, let's begin backwards. Maria, positive psychology is not putting on a happy face. Right. It's not being a member of the happy clappy club or pretending that everything's fine. It's not Disney unicorns dancing through the meadow, sparkle dust on your brow every day. It's about finding a way toward the best of yourself in a healthful fashion in order to bring the best alive in your family, your home, your community. It's about searching for the good within and the good without. And Sue, emotional intelligence, it's not being calm, agreeable, optimistic. Absolutely not. Emotional intelligence is purely the intelligent use of emotions. We all have them. The idea is to use that data, that information intelligently in what we do. And to be perfectly honest, emotional intelligence and positive psychology for me are sort of um, very closely interlinked because we know in positive psychology that if people are flourishing and being the best version of themselves, which generally leads to more positive emotions, then they have perhaps some more strategies up their sleeve to handle when adversity does hit. It's really essentially the study of human beings at their best. It's a psychology of goodness, a psychology of that which enlivens us. So kind of like a reverse of the original where psychology looked for problems and conditions and afflictions and therefore how to treat them. Why don't you look at the symptoms of health? Of who we are when we are thriving, you know, and how can we... We'll look at a cohort of school children who are in danger, not enough food, bad parenting, in danger of being seduced by gangs and drugs and so on. And we'll study the 2% of those children who do extremely well anyway. And what do they know and how can we then teach that to the other 98% in the cohort? So, so treat me. I'm the patient. Things are terribly wrong in my life. I need some positive psychology. Essentially, I absolutely try to approach everyone with the hypothesis of generosity, that they're doing the best they can. And if they're willing to step in the office and offer the question, that means that there is a spark within them that is interested in growth or healing or improvement in some way. But I want to be careful to make sure that we're not saying positive psychology is a replacement 
for tradition, what we call traditional psychology. They really are cousins. They they need to exist hand in hand. There's absolutely a place for the analysis of distress and um, and worse and and worse. And there is a way to sit with someone who is suffering from a personality disorder, a characterological disorder, and hold them from the posture of there is good in you, even as you exist. Let's figure out how to hold the paradox. Evan? For me, I guess, when I was in the monastery, there were people who, you know, have a lot of troubles with mental health, and they come there to, you know, learn meditation and, and mindfulness and, and different things like that. But I think another crucial thing that we sort of underestimate is just the fact that these people are stopping and slowing down and taking a break away from their busy lives and that can be something that's just as crucial. The beauty of working in the death and dying field is that you get to be at the bedside of very young and very old people who are at that point of reevaluating. And, you know, we, we die saying either I regret that I never took that pause to consider what would really be a healthy or a loving or a kind or a meaningful life. Or we say, I did the best I could. I messed up a bit here and there along the way, but I continued on the journey of considering you know, why this living is important for me and what I can bring forward. It's interesting that what we're talking about here is, is for people deeply personal. Yet the skills that we're talking about, emotional intelligence and positive psychology, Sue, you actually bring into workplaces, which on one level seems weird. You know what I mean? There should be a lion at the door. Well, we know that there isn't. Anybody who shows up at work, they're still carrying all the personal stuff. They don't just leave it at the door. And once upon a time, we used to say that, but we know that's not even possible. But when you train businesses about emotional intelligence, we're talking about personality traits, perceptive about what other people are feeling, to have empathy in that context. These are things that some people have, others don't, and there's a marginal ability to train yourself, no? Well, obviously, I'm a big believer you can train it, otherwise I wouldn't have been in business for 16 years. Um, But if we look at things like how our brain can change, what we know from neuroplasticity, the fact that if we do put effort in, we can change the way that we do things and the way that we handle things. Do you test emotional intelligence in the workplace? Absolutely. And what are the results used for, promotions or recruitment? Look, there can be a combination. So we would always say never use one test just to decide if you're going to recruit someone, but it certainly might help add to the mix when it comes to recruiting or developing. And for people from a development perspective to absolutely understand that. And is it a question and answer, like a a test? There are many tests you can do. Um, I suppose probably one of my favourite is uh, something called the Mesquite, which is a a test done by the original three gentlemen, uh, Maya Salovey and Caruso, Emotional Intelligence Test. And I find that useful because it's an abilities-based test. But couldn't I work out the questions that are designed to test whether I have empathy or not and just answer yes because I want to get a high result and therefore get the job, which I'm... You either have the ability or you don't. I have the ability to have empathy, mm-hmm. but I choose not to do so. That may be the case. Because I know how to have empathy, I pass the test because I lie with the answers. Absolutely. And that's why you would never use one test in anything to do with recruitment or development. But it can be really helpful for people to understand how emotions can drive or facilitate cognitive processes, the way that we make decisions. What about using them badly? If I was manipulative or even sociopathic, Mm -hmm. the skills that you train 
would make me worse or better, depending on your perspective. Yeah, it certainly can do. And, and there's all sorts of research that can go in either way. I mean, one I read recently about mindfulness that said, if you're already a narcissist, mindfulness makes you more of a narcissist. Indeed. <laughs> 